it's great to have you with us today. Many of us will be familiar with the experience of carrying a sense of promise, a sense of being called to something, a sense of anticipation of something that God is going to do. And often it seems like it's just there. It's like a few more steps and, and, and we're there. But then, and no doubt you'll be familiar with this experience, then the path kind of drops away and it bends here and there and circumstances turn this way and that. And you end up on this long and convoluted journey far away from where you thought you'd be and probably where you wanted to be. It's actually a very biblical experience. You know, Abraham was given this promise that his descendants would be like this sand on the seashore and it was kind of just there. Is God going to do it now? And they just had to wait until he was well into old age before that would happen. Joseph had this dream, this sense of calling in God of what he was going to be and what he was going to do. And it was like, it seemed like it was just there. And he was sold into slavery. And even when things were getting better in that situation, then he went, you know, was thrown into prison. And of course, Moses he was burdened by the enslavement of his people, had this sense of call, you know, it was, and he was going to step into it, but he kind of mucked it up, didn't he? And ended up 40 years in the desert. This happens again and again throughout the Bible. You know, between the last prediction of the Messiah in the Old Testament and his coming, 400 years elapsed. Many people in the early church thought that Jesus would return in their lifetime. But 2,000 years later, we're still waiting. That doesn't make the wait futile because we should know by now that God is not in a hurry. We should know by now that God seems to like to take the long way, the scenic route, because something vital happens along the way. We tend to be very objective focused in our achievement oriented society and these objectives are generally external. It's no surprise then that we bring this orientation to our sense of calling as Christians. We naturally externalize the objective of our calling. We've got to fix that situation. We need to get these Israelites out of slavery. We're going to get to the promised land. We need to get this world right. And that's fine. Invariably, we focus on the thing that we feel called to do or to build. Absolutely valid. But, and here is really my main point today. There is something of prior importance to what we do. God isn't primarily interested in these kinds of objectives. God isn't primarily building something. God is building someone. It's not the quality or quantity of what we do that matters most to God. It's the quality of what we become as we do it. God is primarily building people. He's not growing an abstract kingdom. He's growing people, which means, folks, we are the project. And I want you to get this today because we're so inclined to focus on the influence we can have or the things that we can achieve when God is most interested 
in what we're becoming. Your calling is not primarily to achieve an external goal or project. Your calling is to become a certain kind of person. You are the project. Well, what is that project? What kind of people is God building us into? Well, God is building a temple, a habitation for his spirit in this world. And you are that temple. I am that temple. And in the fullest sense, we together are that temple. Again, you are the project. The excavators and the drop saws and the nail guns of God are not primarily directed from you to the world. The world isn't the primary building site. You are the building site. The excavators, drop saws and nail guns of God are directed in the first place at you. You We're not building a temple as though it was something out there. We are the temple. The world isn't the project primarily. You are, I am, we are. It's only as we get worked on by the Holy Spirit that we can be used to work in the lives of others. If you get this, you'll get there. Now, God does want us to change our environment. But this happens as we change. It's like when the heater gets hot, it changes the environment in the room. When the power of change is working freely and fluidly in you, then that power of change can work through you. That's why God takes the long and convoluted way. Life is a transforming conversation with God. That is the scenic route. There's no better biblical example of this principle in process than the story of David. What is particularly valuable about the story of David is that we have the Psalms of David to give us an insight into the internal workings of David through the ups and downs of this journey. David was called and anointed by God to be king. Now the role of the kings of Israel was to unite the tribes under God's law and around the worship of God so that they could be a light to the nations. There was a certain effect that God wanted his people to have in the world, but that effect would only take effect when they became who God was calling them to be. There was a certain effect that David was called to have on the nation of Israel. But it seems that the primary step was not for David to build God's kingdom, but for God to build David into a king. So what we see in this story of David is that the way to David's kingship is a long and convoluted way, the scenic route, a long transformational conversation with God. Now, the circumstances weren't comfortable, but they were constructive. And that's because God was constructing something, a temple of his Holy Spirit in David. And so the story is messy because that's what a construction site 
looks like. Actually, the circumstances that David faces are not only increasingly difficult as the story goes on, they're actually filled with some horrific injustice. It's a harrowing journey that goes on for years. And yet God doesn't mend the road to get David to his goal more quickly because the goal was to mend David on the road. Now, I know, I know this is a, I know that we know this. It's like, this is a bit of a cliche. And yet, I don't think we really get it a lot of the time. Because the first thing we do, often when the pressure is on, is we, we just do everything we can to get the pressure off. When we should be asking God, what is the wound here that you're pressing on? So let's spend some time reflecting on this idea and the best way we have to do so, and that is to bring our lives before the mirror of God's Word. We're going to look at the story of David in the second half of 1 Samuel. I'm actually going to fly at a fairly high altitude over the story, and I'm just going to dip down into a couple of key points in 1 Samuel 24 and 26. So David was anointed by God as king while King Saul was still reigning. And there's no mention that Saul knows this. But as God blessed David with military success, beginning with, of course, the defeat of Goliath, Saul becomes increasingly jealous. And this increases and increases into a state of all-out paranoia. Saul suspects David of a conspiracy against him. In fact, he doesn't just suspect it. He assumes that. Well, this actually could not be further from the truth. David is a humble young man who didn't even feel himself worthy to marry the king's daughter. But still, he's defamed, framed, he's hunted down, and the situation is just wrong. Worse, it's deplorable. Saul is not only set on killing David, he actually kills lots of people that he suspects are helping David. It's a terrible situation. Now, often when a situation is wrong, we can tend to feel that just about any course of action is justified to make it right. And we often assume that our highest priorities, we've got to make the situation right, but God's highest priority is not to use you to get the situation right, but to use the situation to get you right. That comes first. In priority, there's not always temporally, but in priority. Let me jump now into an important moment uh, in the story in 1 Samuel 24. Uh, so Saul has been pursuing David for some time at this point, and David is living with his men out in the desert in hiding. And it says in 1 Samuel 24 from verse 1, Saul was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day. The Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then David crept up unnoticed and he cut off the corner 
of Saul's robe. Now, let me just make a comment about this. I know this seems harmless, but this act had powerful symbolic implications. David cut the royal robe. This signified a taking of power from Saul by effectively cutting the tasseled corner of the robe. Remember, according to the to the law, they had to have tassels on their robe. By effectively cutting the tasseled corner of the robe, it rendered the robe non-compliant with the requirements of the law. David had symbolically invalidated Saul's claim to the kingship. Now, this may not be evident to us, but it was very evident to David at the time. As soon as he did this, he recognised that he had done wrong. By symbolically voiding Saul's kingship, he had, in a sense, lifted his hand against the Lord's anointed ruler. Now, the fact that Saul was an insane, murderous tyrant doesn't justify this act. Now, the main thing for the author of 1 Samuel isn't that David did something wrong. The main thing for the author is how David responded. David is used in, these, in, these, in this book as an exemplary figure throughout these stories. And it isn't because he is without sin. Jesus Christ is the perfect example. David is the example of what you do when you're not perfect. David is held up as exemplary here and elsewhere in the story for how he responds when he does sin. Okay, so we read on. Verse 5. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. How's the, how's the responsiveness? of How's the, the soft heart of David? He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. You can read the rest of this uh, for yourself. Now, David's men would have thought that he was mad. Seems like madness. I mean, I wonder if they would have thought twice about even following this, this leader. Look, what, what is he, some kind of weakling here? He needs to stand up against this mad tyrant and step into God's promise. It's probably what his men were thinking. And we actually see this in what they'd previously said, which is in effect, this is your moment, David. This is your moment to fix this situation. They thought that God was giving this opportunity to change the situation. But David realised that God was using this opportunity to change him. And he responded. He responded to the Holy Spirit's conviction. Now, not long after this, David is faced again with a very similar situation. But this time, he does better. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 26 from verse 2. Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. 
Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakilah facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and he went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. And Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come or he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head and let's go. And he does that so that he can prove to Saul that he isn't conspiring against him. Now, again, you can read the rest of that story for yourself. You see, David isn't going to take something that God isn't giving to him. David saw that in this situation, God wasn't giving Saul over David. This was an opportunity for David to give Saul and himself over to God. This was a test of David's faith and David responded to the test. David didn't respond by trying to change the situation. He responded by listening to what God was requiring of him in that situation. And he does well here. It's important to recognise though that this doesn't happen out of the blue. You know, David's not just calmly walking into, no, the, look at, if you look at the Psalms of David, and man, I encourage you to read the Psalms, the Psalms of David show us the struggles that David went through with this. He struggles through the whole thing. He struggles with God through the whole experience. But, and here is my point. David chose to wrestle with God rather than with men over this. He prayed his way forward. I mean, he complained, he appealed to God's promises. He exerted, I mean, as in bringing his complaints before God, that's the right kind of complaint. He ex exercised his faith and his faith grew. It's what's so wonderful actually about the Psalms. You see that process of growth happening. This situation was the making of David. And because David chose to battle this out in prayer, he was able to do the right thing in the conflict. And he basically does exactly as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, where Paul says from verse 14, bless those who persecute you and do not curse. Do not be conceited. Do not pay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. 
If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And listen to this, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what David did. That's how he prevailed. That is what Jesus did. That's how he prevailed. And that's what we must do to prevail. God will often lead us through terrible circumstances. And our tendency is often to become preoccupied, even obsessed with the circumstances. We go over it in our heads. We lie awake at night. We feel frustrated by the situation. We're angry with the people that don't see things the way that we do. Situations like this have a way of putting pressure on the infections in our attitudes, like a festering boil that we didn't really feel until the circumstances pressed against it. And then, of course, we get angry with the circumstances. We make it our mission to change these circumstances, and that may be needed. But you can't see what's required for the circumstance until you respond to what God requires of you in the circumstance. If your primary preoccupation is to change the circumstance, you're out of alignment with God. Who wants to change you? Because you are the project. The last couple of years um, have been in, in, in many ways uh, full of, I mean, certainly full of challenges uh, for me. And, and I, look, this, I don't know what's going on, but this last 18 months, couple of years, it's brought all sorts of stuff <laughs> to the surface in me. It's like, you know, uh, there's plenty, plenty of uh, revelation not the things that I wanted to see. Plenty of pressing on the wound. God's been stirring the waters of my heart. And this feels like, this feels like a move of the Spirit. Because that's what happens when the Holy Spirit moves. That's what happens. You know, I've said before that, you know, we, time, we, we like to think that, you know, when the Holy Spirit moves, He's going to come and sprinkle sugar over the top to ease our discomfort when actually God comes with a fistful of salt to heal the wound. Now, well, this is the good news. This is the good news. Jesus saves. The Holy Spirit liberates. But will you be saved? Will you be saved? Will we be responsive? There's a move of God. I believe there's a move of God here in the midst of the earthquakes, fires and storms. But who's willing to listen to the still small voice? Are we so distracted by the circumstances that we're not hearing what God's saying to us? The Holy Spirit is moving. This this 
is a construction site. This is a construction site. God is at work building his temple here so that we can be a light to the world. This is a construction site on which the old is being demolished and it's something new is being built to replace it. And it's a mess. And it's going to get more messy, just like a construction site. We've got wires hanging out. We've got these supporting timbers propping up walls, piles of rubble everywhere, holes in the ground, you know, mud being walked all over the slab. And it looks like a disaster zone, but it's not a disaster zone. It's just a construction site. So, and this is really important. Please hear this. So don't disconnect and wait out until it looks the way that you want it to look until you reconnect. I'll come back. I'll come back. Give me, let me know when you're finished. But see, then you'll miss out. You'll miss out on being hammered and sawed and sanded and whatever other wonderful things God has in mind. Now, get in on the mess. Come and get covered in dust. Get your feet muddy with the rest of us. Don't wait out until the project's finished because you are the project. We are the project. We are the materials being bent, cut, nailed and shaped. This is a construction, One Hope Church. We should put a, a warning out the front. Warning, One Hope Church. Warning, construction site. God is building his temple. God is building his temple. And his plans are perfect. He is building something beautiful and I'm not going to miss out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for what you're doing. Father, we call on your name over our lives. Lord, we need to be saved. We need to be saved. (laughs) Father, would you come and heal our wounds, tear down what is old and build up what is new and build your temple, Lord. Build us, Lord, we pray, into a temple of your Holy Spirit. Let us hear your voice. Give us soft hearts to be responsive. Father, we say yes to this process. We say yes to the process. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, and build your temple here, Lord. Come and build your temple here. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you cover us with your grace, that you forgive us, for all of our failures and our wrongs. Thank you, Jesus, that you come and work on us. Holy Spirit, build us up into something beautiful, something good.
for your glory. Amen. Bless you.